The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. You'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 7, page 49 in the Pew Bible if you're using that, Exodus chapter 7, and we'll read from verses 14 until chapter 8 and verse 19. Exodus chapter 7, and beginning in verse 14, let's listen carefully and worship the Lord in the way we receive his word this evening. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the, Nile, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said." Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants." And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. 
Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from, Sher- from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. O Lord, the grass withers, the flower fades, but it is your word which will stand forever and ever. We bless you and praise you for giving us this, the word of you, our God. And we pray that you would come to us, O Lord. Bless us as we receive it again this evening. May its light shine and overtake the darkness of sin and unbelief in our own hearts and in our own lives. Father, we pray that you would use it to strengthen our faith and increase our love. Would you open up our eyes to see your grace and glory here and revealed and grant, O Lord, that we might walk then in all ways pleasing to you by the grace of your beloved Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we ask for this in his name. Amen. Well, we left off last week with Moses and Aaron having gone to Pharaoh. The Lord gave them the, the command, the message from the Lord that he, Pharaoh, was to let his people go out of the land. And, and just as God had said what would happen, of course, we remember that Pharaoh demanded proof. And so Aaron took his staff and threw it to the ground, and it was turned into a serpent, a snake. We saw that Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to imitate that sign. They were able to take their staffs and throw them, and they also were turned into serpents and snakes. But we saw that that Aaron's serpent, uh, staff serpent, swallowed up theirs. And yet, despite this great sign, just as God said, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he refused to listen. Well, that sign... Uh, That sign followed by Pharaoh's hardening of his heart is really kind of a sign of of what is now to come. We will see how the Lord will multiply his signs throughout the land of Egypt, only to have Pharaoh's heart hardened again and again until at last the Lord will destroy Pharaoh. He will judge Pharaoh in Egypt and all of of her gods at the, the, uh, the Red Sea. So we begin then this, the, the plagues. Now, as was mentioned earlier, we're going to consider the first three. These first nine plagues can be divided into three cycles of three. So we're considering the first of three cycles in looking at these first three plagues. Water to blood, uh, frogs, and gnats. Did you hear that, children? 
be good for us as we're making our way through these plagues for you to memorize uh, all 10 plagues. Tonight you should have these ones memorized well and perhaps parents I would encourage you as you're driving to evening worship and from evening worship maybe you can recite the plagues that we're learning and try to commit them to memory. So tonight it's water to blood, frogs, and gnats. Now let me give you one other uh, cycle of three things which perhaps we can also commit to memory for the next few sermons at least. This, this cycle of three is why some have identified this sort of three times three structure which we're suggesting. Notice in our text this evening that it begins, verse 15 of chapter 7, with Moses warning Pharaoh in the morning at the Nile River. And it will be the same with, with uh, plagues 4 and 7. And then the second plague begins in chapter 8, verse 1, with Moses going into Pharaoh. Presumably he goes and again warns Pharaoh right in his palace. And that will repeat in the fifth and the eighth, uh, eighth plagues. And then for the third plague, we find that there's no warning given at all. And that will repeat in the, in the sixth and then the ninth plagues. So we have that same progression that in all three cycles of three. I heard one OP uh, preacher, a friend of mine, describe it this way, and this is something I think the children can learn well. Morning warning, palace warning, no warning. Morning warning, palace warning, and then no warning. And so it will be for each cycle of three plagues. Let's consider the first three then. Water to blood, frogs, and gnats. Our message this evening is simply this, that sovereign over water, frogs, and gnats, as well as all false gods, the Lord is the true God. I have three points for us this evening. The first is this, that he is the creator and sustainer of the waters and of all that is. Creator and sustainer of the waters and all that is. I say uh, specifically the waters or draw our attention to the waters because one other point which can uh, be made, I think, perhaps about all three of this first uh, cycle cycle of three plagues is that they all seem to be connected to the Nile River. Obviously, that's true with the the first one as well as the second since the the frogs uh, come up from the Nile. But what about that third plague? What are these these tiny creatures, I'm calling them gnats, following the ESV translation. Another common suggestion is that, that perhaps these were actually mosquitoes. There have been other suggestions, perhaps lice, fleas, ticks, uh, maybe flies, although the fourth uh, plague seems to be some other species of flies. Perhaps we can't know for sure what these little things were. Whatever they were, it seems they were tiny creatures, tiny insects, and they were extremely annoying, and they served to make life miserable in Egypt, as with all of these plagues. But if these were gnats or mosquitoes, then that would support the the connection to the Nile River. Mosquitoes are known to breed in water sources. Gnats also flourish where there's plenty of moisture, and that was certainly true all around the Nile River, as we'll see. And as we move through through these three cycles of three plagues, there may may seem to be something of an intentional movement from the water, first cycle, up to the land for the second cycle, uh, cycle, and up to the sky for that third cycle. 
So these three cycles of three progress then in such a way as to sort of systematically demonstrate the complete lordship of Yahweh, Israel's God. He was, he was greater than all of the Egyptian gods and that he ruled over everything, ruled over these gods who were believed to kind of each uh, control and rule over their own particular sphere of rule, right? So, so if you if you were a, an Egyptian, you knew that that, that that Hopi was kind of the god of the Nile. You wouldn't you wouldn't go seeking his help if there was a problem connected to the sky. Maybe hail is falling and destroying the animals. You know, you you wouldn't waste your time going and say, uh, uh, Hopi, could you do something about the hail destroying our crops? You'd fully expect Hoppy to say, sorry, not my jurisdiction, right? Wrong department. Go and register your complaint with, with one of the other gods or goddesses. And so it really was quite a remarkable claim for Israel to make that Yahweh, her God, was Lord over all, Lord over the waters, Lord over even the land, Lord over even the skies, indeed creator of all, creator of the heavens and the earth. Lord of all, creator of all, creator and, as we were reminded earlier in our affirmation of faith, God's providence, the sustainer of all. And I think in some ways that's particularly important with respect to these plagues which we see take place. On that point, another Egyptian deity worth mentioning this evening is Ma'at. Ma'at. Now, Ma'at was believed to be the, the goddess of truth and justice and, listen to this, of balance and order. Balance and order, in fact, as one writer describes it, more than just a goddess to the ancient Egyptians, Ma'at represents the crucial concept of how the universe was maintained. Another writer defined Ma'at this way, the equilibrium of the whole universe, the harmonious coexistence of its elements, and the essential cohesion indispensable for maintaining the created forms. So Ma'at was was universal order. Ma'at was the opposite of chaos. To to the Egyptians, chaos was something that was greatly feared. And so this concept of ma'at was, was very important to the Egyptians, very important to their religion, to their thinking, to their living, that people sought to, to live their lives in such a way as to be able to preserve ma'at so that there would not be chaos. Well, what about Pharaoh in this regard? See, in Egyptian, Egyptian kings were believed to play in a very important role in this regard. In fact, they were even given titles which reflected this. Lord of Ma'at, preserver of Ma'at. Egyptian kings were considered to be more than just kings. They really were considered to be incarnate gods. And maintaining Ma'at was an important function of their rule. And so in visiting Egypt with these plagues, here God was showing that no, it was not Pharaoh. No, it was not any Egyptian goddess. It certainly was not some sort of impersonal, universal Concept. It was not Ma'at who preserved the world. It was the Lord. It was the God of Israel. He was the true and the living God. He was the one sovereign over all of creation. Yes, even sovereign over the great Nile River. How fitting 
that as the Lord began to strike Egypt with these plagues, that he began at the great Nile River. We need to understand this evening just how important the Nile River was to the land of Egypt. Egypt was a desert. Without the waters of the Nile, Egypt would have been nothing but a big, barren wasteland. But every year, every year, there was this seasonal flowing or overflowing of the Nile. The river would overflow and it would cover thousands of miles all around the, the, the river. This flood actually served to uh, deposit soil, uh, which would make for extensive fertile, fertile farmland. Actually, the, the flooding of the Nile continues to be celebrated as a, a holiday in, uh, in Egypt. Well, in ancient Egypt, it was, as I mentioned the name earlier, it was personified as the god Hopi. I comment earlier about the sphere of Hopi's rule limit being limited, that comment notwithstanding, Hopi was believed to be truly, truly great. The greatness, is, uh, with, uh, the greatness they conceived of Hopi having is, is uh, seen in a number of hymns you can go and read about, uh, which were sung to Hopi. Hopi is praised as the Almighty One, the one who creates all that is good, all things come from his power. Hopi is the one who comes and who nourishes the land and gives food to all. Hopi is even praised as the one who, listen to this, the one who delivers, the one who delivers. Now, Hopi was not the only god. Another Egyptian deity uh, was Heket. Heket was a frog-headed goddess. If you want to see pictures of Heket, just Google that, that word Hecate, H-E-Q-E-T, and you can see this, this goddess with a human body and a frog head. Now, why on earth would you conceive of any deity possessing a frog uh, head or being frog-like? Well, Hecate was believed to be the goddess of fertility. Imagine that maybe frogs were known for being amazingly and dependably fertile, always multiplying, especially around the Nile. And so a frog-like deity, not a, not a god, but a, a goddess, since females give birth, uh, would maybe have been a fitting image for fertility. In fact, in ancient Egypt, they would actually even wear, wear amulets. And so good luck, good luck charms, images of frogs. Perhaps you could imagine a, a woman wearing a necklace with an image of a frog around her, a barren woman, hoping maybe this would be a, a means of uh, opening up the womb. Well, that was the ancient world of Egypt, or the world of, of ancient Egypt. How marvelous it was that it was into this world that the Lord came and, and showed that it was not Hopi, it was not Ma'at, it was not Heket. It was the Lord who is the true and living God. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who causes the, the barren woman to conceive and to give birth. He's the one who is powerful and who gives life to all. He's the one who gives water and nourishes the earth. He's the one who provides food to all. He's the one who delivers. And he's the one who maintains order in the universe. He's the one who, who preserves the equilibrium, right? Who is the one who does all this? It's this very one who had sent Moses to Pharaoh to give this command. How, how wonderfully these plagues came, as it says in chapter 8, verse 10, they came so that they might know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. No one like the Lord, our God. No one like the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Well, if that's true, then what do you suppose would happen to those who oppose this God, to those who refuse to acknowledge his lordship? What would happen to those who trust in other gods? What would happen to those who exalt themselves as gods? Well, that brings us to our second point this evening, that he, the Lord, will judge all counterfeit gods and those who trust in them. In a sense, what happens in these plagues is that the Lord, really, he reveals who he is by way of contrast with Pharaoh and Egypt and her false gods. The Lord really comes and he shows them to be what they truly are. Later, through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord will reveal what what, uh, Pharaoh truly is when he will say in Ezekiel chapter 29, And verse 3, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. Indeed, as Moses uh, comes and he confronts uh, confronts Pharaoh, there's the morning warning, comes to him as he's down in the Nile. What is he doing? He's kind of acting as, as the great dragon wading in the Nile, which he sort of claims as his own. But the Lord will show him who it is who owns and who is truly sovereign over the Nile. Pharaoh, you, you and all of the gods of Egypt, you are not the source of life. You are not the source of goodness. You are not the source of order. In fact, you are chaos. You are anti-life. You are death, and I will show it to be so. You will be shown to be so. And so in the same way that 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 staff serpent of Aaron swallowed up those staff serpents of Pharaoh's servants, the magicians. Here the Lord is revealing, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to swallow you up, as it were, Pharaoh. I'm going to destroy you. In fact, later, of course, what will become the end of Pharaoh, he will be swallowed up in the waters of the Red Sea. By the way, we can think of another reason why, why striking the Nile would have been such a fitting first plague and act of judgment. Remember the end of chapter 1 where Pharaoh had, had turned the, the, the waters of the Nile into a, a place of death for all of the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew boys born to the, to the Hebrews. Maybe that was the previous Pharaoh, as we've learned. But even so, there was, there was a guilt in the nation. In, in a sense, we could say that, that Egypt had blood on her hands, blood on her hands particularly connected to the Nile River. And so how fitting then that the entire Nile River would be turned into blood. And just imagine what that was like. We can't imagine it. To think every possible water source turned to blood. Blood everywhere, as we see it in verse 19. Not just, not just the main river, but even the canals and the ponds and the pools. Even the vessels of wood and stone. That Even, even the storage containers. And I presume that means that these were containers where water had been taken from the Nile and was already being stored in these containers before the Lord struck Egypt with this plague. But even that water was turned into blood. That, that by the way, is proof that this was not some sort of natural phenomenon. This was not merely a, a case of red-colored silt resembling blood. No, this was, this was true blood. We see that God mercifully did not give the people over to complete destruction. He didn't leave them to die of thirst. God 
graciously, mercifully allowed them to, to dig for drinking water. That, that is grace, isn't it? That's, that's common grace, even to unbelievers, even those suffering under a particular judgment of God, even to them, God, by not giving them over to what they completely deserve, God gives them a measure of grace. And so they were able to dig for their water, but surely they suffered greatly uh, from this plague of blood throughout all the land of Egypt. There was blood and there was death. Of course, we, we, we know that that fish was an important food source, a staple in Egypt. And what happened to the fish? All of them were dead. There was death, and there was the stench of death, the stench of death from the fish. And we also read about the stench of death from the second plague, the frogs. We see that it it concluded with piles and piles of dead uh, frogs and a stench that filled the land. At various points, I think we, we should appreciate the comedy. This is, the narrative is truly comical. When we come to that second plague, I think we have to just laugh at what a fitting polemic, what a, what a powerful argument this was against Egypt's gods, particularly against Egypt's belief in her goddess of fertility. And we could note, by the way, that the Lord had already revealed so wonderfully in his dealings with his own people, Egypt, or, or, or the Israelites, that he's the God who multiplies the peoples. He caused his people to multiply even as they were suffering in the land of Egypt. But here the Lord was saying, you trust your frog goddess as the one who gives birth, the one who, who, who enables your people to multiply. I'll show you multiplication, right? You want to see multiplication? Watch your frogs multiply. What irony. They, they multiplied in ways never seen uh, 8.3 tells us that the, the Nile swarmed with frogs. And, and of course, they, they left the Nile, and they went up and they entered the, the houses, the bedrooms, the beds, the ovens, even the, even the kneading bowls. Just imagine what this was like. Imagine it, children. I used to think it was fun to find frogs when I was a kid. This wouldn't be fun. Imagine everywhere you go, frogs, frogs, and more frogs, frogs invading every aspect of your life, where you're sleeping, where you're eating, everything. Verse 6 says that frogs came up and they covered the land of Egypt. I think also comical is the response of the magicians, really, and as we see the response in both of these first two plagues. I certainly agree with the with, with Pastor Hulse, with what he said last week, that there was true power in the part of these magicians. These were not just kind of tricks or illusions. There was true satanic power enabling them, for example, to, to cause their staffs to turn into serpents. But we saw that clearly their power was limited, real power, but limited power, and the Lord really makes a mockery of them. Just think about this. Here the, the water has been turned into blood, and what's their response? Like, hey, we can do the same thing. Now that's, that's just great, right? But you know what would be truly helpful is if you could turn the blood back into water. We don't need more blood. We need drinking water, right? And yet how amazing it is. We think about the, the folly. It's, it's comical, and yet it's tragic and sad, the folly of sin, that, that Pharaoh could be impressed enough with this mimicry, this useless mimicry, that in response to that, he hardens his heart against the Lord. Now, it does seem that there was... Some change, uh, not a complete change, but some 
movement on the part of Pharaoh in the second plague with the frogs. Again, the, the magicians just did the very same thing, right? In fact, it comes out even more clearly there. Not only does it, it says explicitly in, in chapter 8, verse 7, they made frogs come up, come up on the land of Egypt. I, I just find this especially hilarious, right? Here, here we have frogs everywhere, and they say, can guys, can you do something about this? And sure, Pharaoh, we'll just show you our latest trick here. Watch me pull a frog out of my hat, right? Thinking Pharaoh's saying, yeah, I've been, I've been doing that all morning. What would be really great is if you could make the frogs go away. You're not exactly helping restore order here, right? Not exactly preserving the equilibrium. At this point, we do see for the first time, we see Pharaoh kind of acknowledge the Lord. Note in, note in uh, chapter 8, verse 8, that he does call Moses and Aaron, and he asks them, before he'd said, I don't even know the Lord, now he asks them, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And he makes that promise, and I'll let them go, that they might sacrifice to the Lord. We know, of course, that his, his heart is not truly broken before the Lord. Instead, he's going to deceive and he's going to break his promise. Also, very interestingly, notice at that point, 8-9, that Moses actually allows Pharaoh to be the one to give the command when the plague will end. I'm not sure what to make of this. Is this somewhat a measure of, of, of humility and deference before Pharaoh, acknowledging that he is still a king and showing him a measure of of respect, or is this really intended again as something of a, a comical mocking of Pharaoh, mocking his self-deceit of continuing to think that he's the one in charge? Perhaps, perhaps a bit of both, but certainly it powerfully shows that uh, so clearly that Pharaoh is not in charge. The Lord is the one in charge. The Lord is working through His servant working at the word of his servant. And so it's marvelous, truly, to see Moses say, okay, Pharaoh, just give the command. You say the word, just tell me, and you'll see this stop. Clearly, the Lord is the one who has sent Moses. He is the one who is in sovereign control, and these plagues are a judgment from him, the one who is indeed sovereign over the Nile, sovereign over the frogs, and sovereign over the gnats or over the mosquitoes, whatever these were. Uh, the third plague is very brief. You know that the, the one striking feature in the third plague is that no longer are the, the magicians able to imitate what the Lord has done. So Pharaoh's magicians are, are shown to be weak and powerless. They are weak and powerless in this case, not only in their inability to imitate the plagues, but in this case, or not only in their inability to reverse the plagues, but in this case, they're not even able to imitate the plagues. All they can do is acknowledge this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. The Lord, the God, he's the true God, and he will oppose and judge all those who fail to acknowledge him all those who oppose him. But, but, and this is our last point this evening, but he will bless those who trust him. How marvelous to think that all of this amazing judgment, this great display of power, and yet we need to remember that this is not a story of judgment. Not only, not ultimately, is this a story about judgment. This is part of the great story of deliverance. 
And just think about those words. Just think about that promise. Pharaoh will know. He refuses to acknowledge. He refuses to, 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 to uh, come to know me. But he will know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The Lord, of course, again, speaks to his, his, his covenant. I am the covenant Lord. Pharaoh would learn. Sadly, he wouldn't learn in true repentance and faith, but he would come to learn of God's covenant grace to his people. Pharaoh would come to see and to learn of God's unwavering resolve to, to preserve and deliver his people, as we saw, this is the purpose of Exodus, to preserve and deliver his people with whom he will dwell, with whom he is purposed to dwell. And indeed, we have to, to marvel at the way that certainly for his people, and in a sense for all the people, these plagues not only re- revealed the judgment of God, but they revealed the mercy of God. Every plague finally came to an end by the saving power and grace of God. And it's interesting to, to, to uh, simply ask the question, did these first three plagues involve the people of Israel suffering along with the Egyptians? We'll see a distinction made beginning fourth plague next time. But at this point, certainly God was, was showing mercy in the fact that these plagues came to an end. The Lord showed that it was not Ma'at who would preserve and restore the order. It was it was uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who would do so. The Lord's work in these events uh, can be described uh, with the words, and these are kind of theological terms that have been used not only with regards to Exodus, but also with the Genesis flood narrative, decreation and recreation. He will decreate, but he will, mercifully, he will recreate. One preacher put it this way, God brings decreation, chaos on Egypt, in order to deliver Israel to the new creation. Decreation chaos, in order to deliver his people into his new creation. To that end, yes, Pharaoh and Egypt were, were shown to be what they truly were, a place of decreation, a place of chaos. They, they, they are the, the perfect picture of this fallen, sin-cursed world where people worship and serve false gods, exalt and worship and serve themselves in rebellion against the true God, in rebellion against their creator. But how marvelous that it's in this very context that the Lord came and he did this great work, recreation, recreation, new creation. That's what God does. That's what he was doing here, even for his people of old, Israel, and that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, it is perhaps with reference to that, that concession on the part of the, the uh, magicians of Pharaoh when they say, this is the finger of God. It's perhaps with reference to that that Jesus comes. And he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We know that it's Christ ultimately. He, he's the one who brings about the destruction of the ungodly and judgment on the wicked. He's the one who comes and brings that to the kingdom, brings that new creation which God is, is bringing to us and making us to be in him. Jesus is the one who came to destroy that, that dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil himself. Jesus is the one who came to bring destruction by giving himself up over to destruction. 
You want to talk about chaos and disorder, to think that the, the, the Son of God himself could be given over himself to face judgment worse than any of the judgments we'll read about in the book of Exodus. He was given over to the wrath of God as he paid the penalty for all of our sins. Praise God for that. But how wonderful then that in him God reveals to us his mercy, his grace. How wonderful the grace of Jesus. How wonderful that grace should appear to us as we remember this evening that that even Pharaoh and his hard-hearted rebellion is but a picture of what you and I are by nature. Every one of us rebels, uh, rebels against God. And here God has come to us and shown us his mercy. Just consider the grace of Christ. We were we were taught about it this morning, weren't they? The, the great compassion of Jesus Christ. Maybe we can think of it this way as we think of all of the waters of, of the Nile River, billions and billions of gallons of water brought to, to water all of Egypt. Uh, that the grace of Christ is, is far, far greater, infinitely greater. Look to Jesus. Look to him this evening. Look to the one who bled and died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. There you find the one who is the true fountain of blood, or the one whose, whose blood is sufficient to wash away all of the sins of all who ever turn to him and trust in him. I pray that your trust is in him this evening, even as you hear this message. Well, as we turn to him again, let me, let me end with simply three brief words of application. One is simply that, trust. Trust in him. Secondly, learn of his compassion. We heard it this morning, and it bears repeating this evening. Learn of his compassion. And lastly, again, worship him. Trust him. Think of Psalm 115, right? What ought to be our response? It comes out so nicely in Psalm 115, the Lord's revelation that the gods of the nations are but vain idols, but our God is the true God. He's the one who made the heavens. What's the application? Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord, right? Don't be like those who trust in false gods. Those who trust in them will be like them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord because he is their help and their shield. God has, has delivered us from a life of, of self-trust. He's delivered us from a life of being like Pharaoh who woke up every day and went down and washed himself in his own Nile River, really washing himself in, in his own self-deceit, his own self-idolatry. God has called us to a life of trust. God has called us to a life of learning of his compassion. How can we do that? Only as by his grace we, we live completely contrary to Pharaoh. He went down and washed himself in his own self-exaltation, his own self-idolatry. We're called to, to immerse ourselves in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Pharaoh refused the word of God. We're to give ourselves over to the word of God, immerse ourselves every day in his word and in the grace of Jesus Christ that we might learn Uh, of his compassion, and that we might be more devoted to him. And so let us learn and and, and devote ourselves to Christ. Trust the Lord. Learn of the compassion of the Lord. And then lastly, worship. Think of Psalm 105, a psalm filled with the, the recounting of these very plagues. And why? 
to what end is it good for us to think even about these ten plagues? Well, what's the purpose of maybe riding in the vehicle and, and recounting and memorizing each one of these plagues, not just sort of a mental exercise? No, this should move us to trust in the Lord, yes, and to learn of his great compassion to his people, and it should move us to worship him, to worship the Lord. I'm going to close this evening with a few words we often use to begin our worship, Psalm 105, a wonderful call to worship. Well, that call to worship should not simply be that which begins our worship service, but that it should, should be a call to go forth and worship the Lord in all of our lives. Psalm 105, 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let us go forth and do just that in all of our lives, worshiping the Lord. Yes, as those whom he has preserved, as those whom he has delivered, as those whom he is bringing to dwell with him, to worship him forever and ever.